Turn, please, to Philippians in chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 this morning. Philippians in chapter 1. I realized at about 5.30 this morning that we had a number of sermons from this passage, and uh, so we changed some things up, so we'll see which one comes out. But as you find that, let's pray. Father in heaven. Now we come to this uh, passage, uh, and we pray that you would help us to see it, and God, it would transform us just by the very power of your word. You said uh, that your thoughts aren't ours, your ways aren't ours, but your word is powerful, and it will accomplish that for which you've uh, sent it. So we pray that you would send this word with grace and mercy and compassion and strength and help for us um, even as we live worthy of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians in chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. There's a shift happening here in this book of Philippians, this letter of Philippians, a shift with some continuity. And by that I mean this that Paul has been talking about himself and now he's going to talk about them. That is to say, he's been describing his own life and now he's going to exhort them on in their lives. He's been talking about his joy, his prayer for them, his imprisonment and what's coming out of that. He's talked about his own life that he desires and has confidence that Christ will be exalted in his body, whether by death or by life. He says that for him to live is Christ, to die is gain, that he's going to live on, he suspects, He anticipates he will live on uh, for their progress in the gospel, the advancement of the gospel in and through them, and their joy in the faith. And so he's been talking about them. And now he's going to talk about, uh, he's been talking about himself, now he's going to talk about them. And as he talks about them, the thread that's going to come through from his life is the great value of the gospel. See, what's been driving Paul, what's been informing Paul's whole life is the gospel. And now that he's described how the gospel is significant, is, is, is forthright, is first, last, and always in the context of his own life, now he's going to talk to them about how the gospel will be that in their lives as well. And so he gives to them a command, a command in the context of the gospel. Now often people come to me and, and want to know want to fish out and help me explore with them what God's will is for their life. Usually when they come, they want to know, should they marry this person or that person, or should they take this job or that one, or buy this house or that one, or, or pursue this course of medical treatment or that course of medical treatment, something like that. Or, and, and those are all subjective, and, and, and God doesn't usually say this one or that one. He gives us principles and wisdom upon which we're to act and to choose and so forth and so on. But I can say unequivocally that what Paul commands here is the will of God for our lives. 
the will of God for us. If you want to know what the will of God for your life is, just, just read this first part of verse 27. He begins by, in my version it says, only. And by that he means, no matter what happens, whether I live or whether I die, whether I come to you or whether I don't, whether you live or whether you li- die, or whether you're happy or whether you're sad or whether you're rich or whether you're poor, or whether you take this job or that job, marry this person or that person, only, that is, whatever happens in your life, this must be true. This must be true. So he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is your life. May your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that little word that I have in my Bible translated, let your manner of life, could be translated probably more literally as this. Let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now Paul's anticipating himself because over in chapter 3 verse 20 he's going to say, but our citizenship is in heaven. So he's going to talk to them about the fact that they're citizens of heaven. Yes, they live on the earth and are citizens of whatever country they happen to be in. But really what defines them is that they're citizens of heaven. Now, the people in Philippi would understand that very well. Because Philippi was a Roman colony. That is to say, that though it wasn't Rome, they thought themselves to be Rome. If you would have entered into Philippi, you'd have smelled the air, looked around, talked to people and said... I think I'm in Rome. It reminds me of Rome. It's sort of like, who was the family in my big fat Greek wedding? It was sort of like walking into their house. And you're thinking, I think I'm in Greece. You know, it just seems that way. Uh, And so here they are. I think I'm in Rome. In fact, when Paul went to Philippi, you can read this in Acts chapter 16, when he went to Philippi, they complained about him saying, he's teaching customs and values which are contrary to Rome, to us as Romans. They viewed themselves as Roman citizens. And so they kept the culture of Rome. They kept the values of Rome. They kept the language of Rome. They kept the laws of Rome. When you were in Philippi, you thought you were in Rome. And so though they were citizens, though they lived in Philippi, they viewed themselves as citizens of Rome. And so they lived worthy of Rome. They lived out the worth, the value of Roman culture in all that they did, and they stuck to it. And Paul's saying, I want you to live as citizens, worthy of the gospel, that is, I want your citizenship to be lived in such a way that it shows the value, the worth of the gospel. That's what I want your lives to be. So if you want to know what God's will is for your life, God's will for your life is that you live as a citizen of heaven, even on this earth. And that your life is such that it's lived showing forth the value, the worth of the gospel, what it really means to you and its worth in reality. That's, that's the will of God for your life. Now, Paul could have gone in a number of directions here. For instance, when he wrote to, to, to the people in Ephesus and Ephesians chapter 4, he went in this direction. For instance, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He said, I want you to live out consistent with this calling that you've received to be a follower of Jesus. And so I want you to live worthy of that. That doesn't mean that you have to achieve a lifestyle that's worthy of God's acceptance, but it means this calling has worth. This calling has value. 
And I want you to live consistent with its value, with that calling. And so he goes on to say, to uh, walk in a manner uh, of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with each other in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirits and the bond of peace. He says, I want you to live like Christians. I want you to be kind and gentle and compassionate and forgiving, so that when people look at your life, they see the value of, of, of Christ. They see the value of this calling. In Colossians, he said a similar thing, for instance, in Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He said, You belong to the Lord? Show the worth. Show how worthy the Lord is of your own life. Show the worth of the Lord as you live. And so the way to do that, he said, is fully pleasing to him. Live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. That shows the value, shows how you value Christ. If you live in a life that's pleasing to him, it says, I value him. If you don't, then it's saying, I really don't value Christ. So, I live fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so we're to live worthy of our calling. We're to live worthy of the Lord. We're to live worthy of the gospel. We're to live consistent with the gospel were to show out its worth. Thus, we would live honest, we would live with integrity, we would live morally, we would live justly, we would live and show compassion and grace and forgiveness and all the things that are connected with being a Christian. Uh, I was reading a magazine this week. I wasn't reading Sports Illustrated, but it was a magazine that quoted Sports Illustrated, so it probably isn't one of your best magazines. But, um, but uh, actually, what, I won't tell you what it was. But anyway, I was, I was reading a magazine that quoted a, a guy from Minneapolis who was acquainted uh, with the Minnesota Twins in the late 80s and early 90s. It's not like it's the Indians. And uh, the, the late 80s and early 90s. And um, he said this. They were talking about adultery amongst athletic teams and athletes. And he said, except for the devout Christians... Everyone had somebody on the side. And I thought, A, ooh, but B, good for those devout Christians. Because he noticed they were living worthy of the Lord. They were living worthy of the gospel. They were showing the value of the gospel. And it was noticed. And he said, except for the devout Christians, this was Sports Illustrated he's talking in, so he had no particular agenda here. And it wasn't a Christian who was saying this. He just knew that the Christian guys didn't do that. I said, yes, that's living worthy of the Lord. And so Paul says to live worthy of the Lord. But having said all that, I think that Paul's after something else. I think there's something more particular here when he says to live worthy of the gospel. Because what I think he's talking about here is that we're to live in such a way as to advance the gospel. Because Paul's whole point in Philippians is that they're partners together to defend and confirm the gospel in the midst of this opposition in which they find themselves. And so notice what he says. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He says, What I want to hear about you, this is what it means to be living worthy of the gospel in Philippi. This is what I'm talking to you about. I want you to stand together. In one spirit, 
that is joined together by the Holy Spirit. That the work of the Holy Spirit is to attach us, if you will, draw us close to Christ and to each other. When we have communion, it really is a celebration of our common union. It's our common. We share something. We share a union with Christ, and we share a union with each other. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. First uh, Corinthians thirteen twelve says we've been baptized by one Spirit into one body, to the Spirit of God, one Spirit. He says he wants you to stand firm. Now, the reason he has to say stand firm is because there's something trying to push you over. If there's nothing trying to push you over, you don't need to stand firm. You can just be relaxed. But if something's trying to push you over, you better stand firm. So he said, one spirit together, stand firm. And then he says, with one mind. That is, having the same values, valuing the gospel the same way, knowing the worth of the gospel. All of us together, one mind saying, yes. The gospel is our life for me to live as Christ. That Christ may be exalted in my body, whether I live or whether I die, by my life or by my death. To have one mind and say, yes, we're sold out to Christ. The gospel is what's valuable, what's excellent, what's important. That's what I'm going to live my life around. It will be the center of my life, this gospel. So with one mind, understanding that, we're to strive together. Now, if it's easy, we don't have to say strive. Standing firm and strive are sweat words. They're words that tell us that we have to exert some energy. They tell us that this is going to be difficult because there is opposition. So we have to stand firm and we have to strive together for the gospel, it says. Strive together. With, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that could mean for the faith, comma, that is the gospel. Or it could mean the faith which is contained in the gospel. But either way, the important thing is standing firm, not being pushed back by our opponents because of the gospel and to strive for its advancement and its defense. So Paul is after that. And he says that we should be that way because we're living worthy of the gospel, because you see, the gospel is worth it. It's that valuable. Have you ever been on an airplane and found yourself to be close to a woman who happens to be a new grandmother, and she's flying back from having visited her new grandchild? That may count as one of the most obnoxious people because what she's equipped with are pictures of this grandchild and she believes that she needs to live worthy of this child. That is to say, it's her job to live consistent with the worth of this new grandchild and what that means is that she believes that this child is so worthy that she needs to advance it. And therefore, she wants to tell everybody around her about this grandchild and show this picture. So she shows the people to her right and the people to her left and the flight attendants coming back and she has to go to the bathroom 12 times and so on her way back and forth and standing in line, she's showing the picture of this child. Why? Because she thinks this child is worthy of attention. And she really believes. Now, if you could say, does she love all the people she's showing this child to? And Probably not. But what she loves is this child. 
And she really firmly believes that if you could catch a glimpse of this child, if you could see really the glory of this child, that it would make you happy. That's a lie, of course. (laughs) But she believes that, and there's no slurring her down. So her citizenship is worthy of this child. And you see, that's why we should be advancing the gospel. Because it's worth it. It's that valuable. It's that glorious. Because you see, the gospel is the very glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians and chapter 4 this. He says, in their case, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, in their case, he's talking about unbelievers, he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the lights of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so you see, when we're showing forth the gospel, we're showing forth the worth of Christ, his glory. We're not showing our glory, we're showing his glory. We're saying, look at Jesus. Look at his glory. Look how great he is. He saved some a sinner like me. He is the one that has given me his righteousness. So I may stand in the presence of God accepted. I don't stand on the basis of my own righteousness, for I have none. For me to stand before God is just simply a reminder that I've failed, that I've sinned, that I've fallen short, that I I haven't obeyed him as he deserves to be obeyed. I haven't loved him as he deserves to be loved. I haven't loved others as I ought to have loved them. It's just a reminder of that. I, I feel like Isaiah when Isaiah stood in the very presence of the Lord in the temple of the Lord. And the holiness of God was before him. And he fell to his face and he said, I'm ruined. And he was ruined because his unholiness was reflected in the very holiness of God and by it. And so, that's how we are. But I say, but look at Jesus, the righteous one. I stand in him. And therefore I stand forgiven and accepted by God. Isn't he glorious? what it says in verse 6 it says for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus so Paul says I want you to live worthy of the gospel I want you to show off Jesus because he's worth it one um, missionary to Japan expressed his calling like this he said I'm motivated not so much by the need which is dire, he said. But by the conviction that God is worthy of the worship of every Japanese. Christ is worthy to receive the full reward of his suffering. The Holy Spirit is sovereign enough to use me even in drawing people to God. And the gospel is worthy of acceptance by all. It really is. It's worth all of that. It's worth everyone believing. It's that valuable. It's that significant. Because you see, without it, There's only lostness and condemnation before God. So it's that important. So Paul says, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want your life ambition to be. Here's what I want you to be understanding. This is your self-identity as one group, one spirit, one mind, standing firm, striving together for the faith of the gospel. But then notice, all of that implies, as we mentioned a minute ago, that there's opposition that there's a force against this gospel, against which we must stand firm and strive together so that we may advance this gospel in the midst of this opposition. In fact, 
this will lead, it appears, from this passage to suffering. For instance, Paul writes in verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, it didn't strike me, I must say, and a whole other ending to this sermon, last 15 minutes, until about 5.15, 5.30 this morning. We began to think, why is it that suffering seems to be necessary to advance the gospel of Christ? Why is it that suffering seems to be necessary to advance the gospel of Christ? And I ask it that way first because of this passage. It seems to me that if God loves us, and he does, and if God is all-wise, which he is, and God is all-powerful, which he is, then if there was another way other than our suffering, then he would spread the gospel that way. But he says to this group in Philippi, it has been given to you or granted to you, literally graced to you, to suffer. That is, God says, it's my gift to you to suffer. I want you to stand firm, one spirit. I want you to strive together, one mind, for the faith of the gospel. You have to do that because there are opponents. And these opponents, you have to stand before and not be afraid. That's next week. Not be afraid. But because there are opponents, you're going to suffer. And that's my gift to you. And so I say, why is it necessary that there be suffering for the advancement of the gospel. Now, when you read the Bible, you understand there is suffering for the advance of the gospel. Jesus was really, really, really upfront about it in John chapter 15. In verse 18, he was, this was the night that he was betrayed. He was with his disciples for the last time prior to the crucifixion. And he was giving them the straight scoop on what would take place. And notice what he says in chapter 15 and verse 18. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, this opposition. And it isn't indifferent opposition. It isn't apathetic opposition. But it's hatred, he says. It's, it's, it's nasty opposition. It's intentional opposition. And we know that to be true in the life of Paul as he writes about these things. For instance, even as he as he's called by God to be an apostle. We read this in Acts in chapter 9. Um, after Paul got knocked off his horse and was blinded, uh, God went to a man named Ananias, who knew of Paul's reputation. Rather, he knew the reputation of Saul of Tarsus as a persecutor of the church. And uh, God went to this man, Ananias, and said, I want you to go hook up with Paul and help him. And Ananias responded like this, verse 13 of Acts 9. He says, Lord... I have heard about I have heard from from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name but the lord said to him go for he that is paul for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the gentiles and kings and the children of israel for i will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name even in his calling, Paul is being called to advance the gospel. And he's saying, what I'm going to tell him, so he knows up front, is that he's going to suffer as this occurs. In fact, Paul understood that well in Acts in chapter 21. A situation occurred where a prophet named Agabus came to Paul and said this. 
said, um, while, he, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. In other words, Agabus is saying, Listen, Paul, you own this belt. And you're if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound up. They're going to take you and they're going to bind you up and they're going to give you to the Gentiles. Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Very natural thing to do if you love Paul. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That is to say, I get it. I understand. I've been told from the very get-go that I'm going to have to suffer to advance the gospel. And so I, I, I understand this. Thank you, Agabus, for the word, because it did come true. He was bound up and given to the Gentiles. But he said, that's all right. I know that's what happens to people like me who try to advance the gospel. In fact, if you, if you consider the life of Paul, you understand the difficulties that he experienced. For instance, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, he speaks of such difficulties. In verse 24, he explains his, his, his life. He says, I've experienced far more imprisonments than anyone else with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. They did it that way because they believed that if you got the 40th lash, it would kill you. So they stopped one short of killing you. Since five times that occurred in his life. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Fairly dangerous life. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst often without food in cold and exposure and apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and I am not weak he says listen I know what this life is like this life to be called to suffer for the sake of the gospel to suffer the loss of all things for the sake of Christ and he says to the people in Philippi who are undergoing he says the same kind of suffering that he's undergoing which is imprisonment and he's saying, I understand what you're going through. Now I want you to live worthy of the gospel. Stand in the face of this opposition together. One mind. Strive against it. Don't be afraid. Because you see, the suffering that you're receiving now is God's grace to you. And again, you get the sense that this suffering is necessary, excuse me, is necessary for the advance, for the advance of the gospel. But why? Well, first of all, because that's the example given to us by the Lord Jesus, who suffered to bring us life. Now, our suffering is different than his suffering. We understand that. His suffering was atoning. That is to say, his suffering paid the penalty for our sin. It atoned for it. Our suffering does not atone for our anybody else's sins. Only Christ's suffering atones for sin. But... He suffered and was our example to tell us as we face the opposition of the world, we will suffer as this gospel advances. For instance, Peter writes this in Second Peter and chapter 2 and verse 20. Actually, let me begin with verse uh, 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, 
one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Let me read this again. For this is a gracious thing. Now, when I'm thinking gracious thing, I'm thinking hot fudge Sunday. Right? I'm thinking night off. I'm thinking great steak. Right? That's some gracious... For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, that is, when you're thinking about God, when you understand God, when you're walking worthy of the gospel, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You see, our suffering isn't to, to atone, but our suffering is to bring the gospel. Ours is a suffering of love. Ours is a sacrifice of love. Ours is to lose all things because the gospel is worth it to take this worthy gospel and to stand in the face of the opposition that we come against. It might be persecution. We know from statistics, and I don't know exactly how they compile these, but we know from statistics that there have been more martyrs in the last century or century and a half than there were in the first 17 and a half, 18, 18 uh, centuries of Christianity. More martyrs, more people killed for the sake of Christ. And so we know that that hasn't stopped. We understand all kinds of opposition in the midst of our culture. There's intellectual uh, opposition where we're challenged intellectually and we must stand firm there and strive against it and to explain ourselves in such a way as to show ourselves to be correct in this. There's philosophical opposition. We are now, as Christians, understood to be the intolerant ones only because the definition of intolerance has changed. In previous generations, tolerance meant that you were tolerant of people. Though you disagreed, you treated them nicely. But now, we must be tolerant of one another's ideas. Well, that was simply the thing that separated us before, which is why we could be tolerant of people. But we can't be tolerant of one another ideas when there is an absolute right and an absolute wrong. And thus now we're considered to be intolerant because we're not tol- in, we can't be tolerant of other ideas. We must stand in front of the philosophical opposition. There's moral opposition to us all over the place. Temptations to sin and to cause us to stumble and to fall. We, fortunately, have an antidote to that. It's called repentance and confession. And thus still we can maintain in the kingdom of God. There's all kinds of opposition against us. But it's an interesting thing that when we do stand together against opposition, the gospel prospers. Um, you remember a number of years ago, probably more than 20 years ago now, I think, my numbers are right. A man by the name of Chet Bitterman in Columbia, South America, was killed. Christian missionary for Wycliffe, Bible translators. He was killed. It's fairly well known. What's interesting is that the year after his death, 
applications for overseas missions with Wycliffe Bible translators doubled. And you would think that wouldn't be the case. You would think people going, uh-oh, don't want to go there. But that isn't the case. Why? Because just as Paul said when he was in prison, there were more people emboldened by his imprisonment to share the gospel than ever before. It's interesting. Because you see, it's interesting how when people are willing to suffer, it shows the very worth of the gospel. I would encourage you to pick up this book. It's called Let the Nations Be Glad. We have it on our book cart. Or you can probably pick it up at your new local bookstore. But... John Piper has an interesting chapter on suffering. This is what brought me to this this morning. I picked it up about 5.30 and started reading. All of the great stories. And how it is that suffering causes people to understand to us the value of the gospel. If we're gliding through life just like everyone else, people, people really don't see a difference between us and them. But there's something about suffering and facing it, whether it's illness or opposition, suffering and facing it in Christ with a measure of hope. One of the most phenomenal verses in the Bible is 1 Peter 3, verse 15, where Peter says, he says, be always ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Now, do you understand that Peter's writing to a group of Christians who he's talking to over and over again as suffering ones? He says, you're going through to them fiery trials because he's writing to the people that are probably being used by Nero to light his gardens, that is to say. He's dipping them in pitch, hanging them up, and igniting them to light his gardens. And he's writing to them and saying, listen, you've been called to suffer like Christ, so I can't do anything about that. So, so here's the will of God for you. In the midst of that, make sure when they ask you about your hope, you can tell them. That is to say, live worthy of the gospel so that its value is shown even in hope in the midst of this tremendous, this tremendous suffering. There's something about suffering that shows the worth of the gospel to us. It may be that we're most productive in our Christian lives in the point of our greatest weakness, our greatest suffering. Piper tells a story that was told at one of the Billy Graham evangelistic uh, summits that they had some years ago. It was a story given by a man named Joseph who was a warrior, a warrior tribesman from Africa. He had heard the gospel and he had become a Christian. And in hearing the gospel and becoming a Christian, he began to think, I must go and tell everybody about this. He was like the grandmother with the picture. He said, I've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. I've got to tell everybody about this. And so he does, and he, he goes to a particular village, and as he tells them about the gospel, they don't receive him at all, but they stand against him. In fact, the men of the village uh, bind him, and the women take barbed wire, is how it was described, and they beat him with it, leaving his skin raw, take him outside of the city to be left to die. But he doesn't die. And as he's coming to, in the midst of this, he begins to think, I must have gotten something wrong about the gospel for them not to see the glory of Christ. I showed them the wrong picture. It must have been the wrong one. They didn't see it. So I need to go back and, and correct it in some way because I know that if they see it, they'll see, if I tell them they'll see the glory of, of, of Christ. 
So he goes back a second time and, and they do the same thing. They bind him and the women of the village begin to beat him with his barbed wire and they take him out, the city, out of the city to, to, to leave him to die. But he doesn't die. And then again he goes back a third time and again they bind him and the women begin to beat him but at this time they slow down and they stop and he's able to see and he's realizing that at this time on the third beating the women are weeping and they begin to see the worth of the gospel through a man's life who's willing to give it and they begin to think we must listen to this man now you know because I've said this before I worry about us and I'm quite thankful when I get up in the morning that I'm not facing persecution and so forth and so on but I wonder living in Disneyland as we do that the gospel isn't advancing because we haven't a vehicle through which to show its great worth. It was interesting. I was reading about the war. Hmm, a lot of time. So I'll put it in my pocket. A couple of minutes. Um, I was reading about the war and, and something struck me. There was a man whose last name was Merkel. I was reading. And it was about him. And he was talking about being in the war and being shot at. And his comment was, it's a turkey shoot. And that's not what caught me as much as the next expression. It quoted him, it's a turkey shoot, and this was said, I think, by Private Merkel, who in his normal life is a FedEx delivery man. And that just struck me. Here's a reservist, he's called up, he's been spending most of his life as a FedEx delivery man, and now he's getting shot at. And he knows it because he hears it, smells it, sees it. And I think, here we are, in our normal life, we've got doctors and lawyers and professors and teachers and plumbers and mechanics and accountants and moms and dads and kids, and we don't know it's a turkey shoot. Let me end with this. Richard Wormbrandt, who is a martyr of sorts, and a martyr, writer of martyrdom, with a great pedigree since he was savagely treated in Romania when it was held by communists between 1948 and 1964, 17 years or so, writes this as he was, after he got out. He says, what shall we do about these tortures? Will, be, will we be able to bear them? If I do not bear them, I put in prison another 50 or 60 men whom I know because that is what the communists wish for me to betray those around me. And here comes the great need for the role of preparation for suffering, which must start now. It is too difficult to prepare yourself for when the communists have put you in prison. I remember my last confirmation class before I left Romania. I took a group of 10 to 15 boys and girls on a Sunday morning, not to a church, but to the zoo. Before the cage of lions, I told them, your forefathers in faith were thrown before such wild beasts for their faith. Know that you will also have to suffer. You will not be thrown before lions, but you will have to do with men who would be much worse than lions. 
Decide here and now if you wish to pledge allegiance to Christ. They had tears in their eyes when they said yes. I want to know that about me. And I want to know that about you. That we can stand together one spirit, standing firm, one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel without being afraid. And we're not done. Because we have to ask the question, how is it that we can do all this without being afraid? And not only that, we have to say, how then will that, our not being afraid, be a sign to us of us, our salvation, but also at the same time be a sign to our opposition of their destruction? And then we have to ask, how is it that we can stand together in one spirit with one mind? That's to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, here we go. Again on a journey to think our way through this and I pray to be able to live it out. Lord, I thank you and I do thank you that we live in freedom without um, lions opening their mouths right before us. But don't let us slumber and miss the turkey shoot that's going on all around us, I pray. And we are aware of the opposition and that you would enable us to stand before it and that we would know what it means to be a follower of Christ so that we would live worthy of the gospel, that we would advance it even in the midst of suffering, we pray, and even with the grace of suffering so that that which is most important, that is, the advancement of the gospel, would happen. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that uh, we have elders available to pray, so please uh, take advantage of that. The response to the benediction is uh, out of our letter to the Philippians. For me to live is Christ. Hallelujah. Now when you say for me to live as Christ, what you're saying is, I live worthy of the gospel. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, who be dominion, majesty, power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, for me to live is Christ. Hallelujah.